right? Yeah. I mean, I don't know. I think we've always been pretty upfront with like, this is what we're talking about. This is the scope of what we're looking at. Yeah. You know what I mean? This is where we got it from. (laughs) Right. Yeah. So it's like, we're just kind of talking about shit that we've read or a shitty article. Let me know when you're ready to go. Yep. Ready whenever. All right. So uh, welcome back to The Intervention. Um, I'm Nick and I'll be the host this week. And I'm here as always with my comrade, Steve. Um, This week, we're going to talk about climate a bit and how solutions presented look a bit different depending on the place that they're coming out of, right? So, you know, we've spoken time and time again about the effects of imperialism and colonialism and how that's, you know, impacted shaping global structures of power, right? So structures that now are dominated by obviously the United States and their junior partners in the imperial core like Britain, right? So obviously, like, this is a huge topic, but for this little delicious slice of us talking at you for an hour, dear listener, we're going to have to limit our scope a little bit, right? We're not going to tackle climate imperialism as a whole concept all in one night. So basically, what I want to talk about is how the United States and, again, its junior partners use their dominant position in the capitalist world order to kind of artificially limit the horizons of would-be solutions to climate and outright bury alternatives to capitalism's so-called solutions. Yeah. So. When you say junior partner, I prefer like granddad, like a a guy who's getting old, who doesn't have the power anymore, you know? Yeah. The retirement home partner. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. But really going senile a little bit here at the end. Yeah. And I think we're, I mean, we're not going into detail on certain things like you will hear, but we're starting to touch on how imperialism started climate change through the study of taste of empire i think and we touch on that in every episode so yeah i mean it's just like that process of industrialization through capitalism right Right. that's really led to it and you know preventing solutions like we'll get into so you know again just for kind of like a broad intro the climate crisis i mean as we've seen has exposed and will continue to expose like this hypocritical and exploitative relationship between the global north and the global south as long as we continue to live under the domination of us led global capitalism and i mean really anyone led global capitalism is not going to fix this shit at this point right yeah but um capitalism because it's premised upon the interminable extraction and commodification of resources and human labor But under imperialism, the resources and lives of Latin America, Africa, and Asia, like they disproportionately fuel the consumption machine of the imperial core, right? So capitalism is going to continue to consume unsustainably if we don't impose a new system, right? And it's like, I'm sorry, I don't make the rules. That's just how it is, right? Like at the end of the day, like whoever leads it, like if we don't stop it in some fashion, it doesn't matter. But right now, this is the context we live in with the U.S. leading the world order, right? Now, and again, like we, we're going to focus on obviously kind of solutions that would come out of a global South context, right? But I think it's just important to acknowledge off the top that like, of course, like the working classes of America, of the United States have also been and are going to continue to be impacted by climate change, right? We're going to be left behind by a violent ruling class, literally incapable of dealing with any domestic crises, climate related or otherwise. Um, I think we saw a lot of evidence of this, like during and after like hurricanes, Katrina and Harvey, you know, we had disasters and flooding in places like Puerto Rico that were completely abandoned, right? Trump's like throwing toilet paper out into the, out into the crowds. Um, and then more recently, we obviously saw Eastern Kentucky get absolutely devastated by disastrous flooding, right? And it's important to acknowledge that that flooding came as a result of the absolute rape and pillage of that country by extractivist coal barons. Yeah. You know, 
Um, we could say a lot more on that one, but you know, one thing people should check out if they haven't already is uh, Terrence Ray from the Trillbillies. He put out a, a pretty good article that linked that whole disaster to the coal industry in that region and how they just, again, like I said, pillaged the land forever. Yeah, his podcast afterwards was pretty angry, but pretty yeah, right on. Fucking was great. rightfully so. Yeah. But I'll link that article for people just as a, a nod to a fellow podcaster. <laughs> but um, yeah, but like you said, Steve, that really said it all. In any case, like the list of disasters with an abysmal governmental response like goes on and will continue to grow. But in any case, just want to mention that because, you know, solidarity to all people, whether they're here or abroad dealing with climate disaster. So just, you know, stay safe. I mean, it's interesting. The people that are the biggest deniers of it are obviously, you know, the right who are the people that while they might they might get like affected in the sense that maybe they'll have to sell their summer house on the beach. These are people that can move to avoid the real disasters that climate change is going to bring. Yeah. And they're just going to let, they're the same people that complain about immigration and what are they going to do when be the, when the global South becomes unlivable? Yeah. And these people, you know, working people are going to have to come somewhere to just to be able to survive. They'll complain about that as well. I want to see the liberals step up as well. You know what I mean? Yeah. I mean, that's, they're the people that are most vocal in denying climate change. But For sure. The liberals don't do anything to solve it, and they're still, like you say, driven by capital, so they're not going to... Their solutions are pretty weak. Yeah, I mean, it's like this this bill from Biden, right, it includes some climate stuff. Yeah. I mean, I guess, yeah, it's better than nothing. But is it sufficient for the, yeah. the crisis that we're facing? It's better than Absolutely nothing, not. we're way past... Right. You know, that point. We need now. a lot more drastic solutions. I mean, if you you're going to let Shell and others drive how we're going to affect climate change. It's not going to happen quick enough. It's not going to happen quick enough. And it's not going to happen at all, like we said, because it's always extractivist and predatory, right? So anyway, we digress. But again, just to go back to kind of that relationship that's been developed between the global South and the global North, the global South has been severely underdeveloped by colonialism, as we've seen time and time again, right? And it continues to be underdeveloped or stunted in development by neo-colonial powers who take all the resources and wealth out of these places still, just more through more insidious means like the IMF, et cetera, et cetera. You guys know the story, right? And of course, this is led by the U.S. And I want to just mention this off the top because, you know, when you discuss places like China or Venezuela, I think you all, you're often blasted with like bad faith arguments around their use or sale of fossil fuels to fuel and develop their their societies. But I think it's important to keep in mind that in like the case of China, China is still in many ways a developing country, yeah. right? And Venezuela, you know, they just had their revolution not that long ago. You know, I mean, to at least overthrow the revolution in the sense of overthrowing U.S. imperialism, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, that's a bad faith argument that the right makes a lot in the sense of why should we do anything when India, China, name whatever country you want in the global south, they're not going to do anything, which is which is like a false argument. But also it's, as you said, these countries are, are trying to get away from colonization they've been handed for the last you know however many generations and like everybody is going to have to do more right yes that's absolutely the case but it's so disingenuous because you act like uh, well these people don't deserve the life that we have either you know yeah and like the reality is we need to stop consuming and 
more more than anything, our top 0.1% needs to stop consuming so much. You know what I mean? But still, the average American consumes more, emits more carbon on a per capita basis than almost anywhere in the world. Almost. Yeah, there was that recent, I don't know if you saw it, but like they had a recent article about, you know, celebrities or the, you know, the the richest people in America and their use of private planes. And I think like Jay-Z took a private plane from like Peterborough to White Plains, which is like probably a five minute flight. Get in the car for an hour, dude, or half an hour. Get a train. Yeah, (laughs) whatever. Insane. Yeah, exactly. And like I saw something with all like the droughts in California, the water shortages, like Kim Kardashian just got exposed for like going through like 230,000 gallons of water when there's like a limit placed on it. It's like these people are insane. So, I mean, again, there's a layer of stratification, obviously, between the U.S. and the rest of the world. And then there's just an ungodly chasm between, you know, the elites and yeah. the other and the, and the rest of the working class, you know. I mean, you can and, and people will argue we're kind of getting off. I don't know. Doing some tangents here, but. You know, people will argue about developing nations still building coal or burning coal and, and that being, you know, that's the problem. But like when you just look at overall climate change, all you, all you have to do is look at Phoenix. There should be zero golf courses in Phoenix. Yes. <laughs> and there are hundreds. Yeah. That, there's no need for it. It's a total waste of water. So, you know, it's it's not just the creating energy, I guess. It's all it's it's all different parts of of this climate change thing and how wasteful the u.s is yeah in europe for that matter yeah definitely you know but to that point of like burning coal it's like okay if you take the country's prime resources impoverish them they're kind of left to burn the cheapest shit that they can aren't they because they still need energy right Mm -hmm. so you know again these places still need to develop in a lot of ways to because everybody deserves a good standard of living, right? And they deserve to live in like the modern era, right? And that's what countries want and that's what they're going to do. But like when you actually look at like the historical impact and who's historically responsible for this because of colonialism and imperialism, I mean, if you just look at cumulative CO2 emissions across the globe since I think this figure I've got is from 1751 and I'll link it 1751 to 2017, they calculated this. So North America... 457 billion tons of CO2, 29% of global cumulative emissions. I mean, obviously the U.S. is leads the charge on that. It's a quarter. It's 25% of cumulative total over that time span. The EU, 353 billion tons of CO2 cumulative. That's 22%. That's 50% right there. Right. So, and then, you know, you get China and 200 billion tons, which is 12.7%. But like, then again, you have to get into this area of like, let's have a discussion on a per capita basis. Right. Because China's got what? 1.4 billion people now. Mm -hmm. And even with that, and again, we said they're still developing. They're emitting half of the amount of CO2 on a per capita basis that the U.S. is, you know. So, again, it's just like you really have to dive into these numbers. Like, yeah, China is emitting a lot of CO2. But like, as we've said before, you know, they're doing a lot more than we are from what I understand on climate. And I don't want to make this just about China because there's other places in the world doing doing great things. And there's other places that need to be developed more that consume way, way less even CO2, you know? So, but in any case, I just want to point that out. So, but yeah, so we can look at statistics and we can dive into that kind of all day. But like, I think I want to talk about something like maybe less explicit than something measurable like that. 
and really discuss, like I mentioned off the top, how real solutions, solutions that are often rooted in the theory and practice of indigenous people, are buried as a result of the domination of the world by U.S. imperialism. And I think the way I want to do this is to just do a comparison between two climate documents, the Green New Deal, and compare it to the Cochabamba People's Agreement, uh, which came out in 2010. So just for some background on the two documents, I mean, everybody listening may have some level of familiarity with at least the Cochabamba. I'm assuming you know about the Green New Deal. Um, But just as a quick refresher, the Green New Deal is formally known as House Resolution 109, and it was introduced by a cohort of representatives led by AOC in 2019 into the U.S. House of Representatives, right? And I think it's important to recognize that this was a resolution, not a bill meaning that even if it were agreed to by the legislature, it would have no binding effect, right? It was just simply to, I think, call attention, which, you know, there's a place for calling attention to problems, right? But I guess I I thought this was a good document to reference here in this context, because I think we can agree that like on a mass basis, at least within the U.S., it's considered to be the most radical climate proposal out there, at least in the mainstream media. But frankly, you know, if people had taken five minutes to read it, they would have really quickly seen through a lot of the sensationalization of that. Does that make sense? Yep. Uh, of, you know, people like Tucker Carlson, right, who really misrepresented what it was. I mean, obviously, in my view, it's not nearly radical enough, but, yeah. you know. Yeah, they just made jokes like, you can't have hamburgers or yeah. you got to stop cows from farting or whatever stupid jokes they make. And, like, as we'll see, it has nothing, like, binding in it, really. Right. You know what I mean? It has good language, you know, blah, 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 blah. And it's good to call attention to stuff. You know, I think maybe that if that's what the intent was, then achieve that. But, you know, I think what I want to show is like the limits that, you know, presenting something in the U.S. government put on what you can actually present. Right. All right. Just to introduce what the Cochabamba People's Agreement is, is this was actually a document that was developed nearly a decade ago, um, well, a decade earlier than the Green New Deal. And it came as a result of the World People's Conference on Climate Change and the Rights of Mother Earth. And this conference was hosted by Bolivia and the president at the time, Evo Morales. And this conference was really held in response to what was acknowledged as the complete inadequacy of the Copenhagen Summit, like the UN Copenhagen Summit by, you know, well, the Global South held it to be inadequate, largely, and inclusive of indigenous people all over the world. So I think I want to start with that. Just a few caveats. So like one, I'm completely and totally aware that the intent and context of these documents are different, right? Two, things have obviously progressed and developed since the time that these documents were written. So things aren't exactly the same as they were. Um, They're way, way worse. worse. (laughs) Um, But, you know, my intent here is to simply compare these proposals so we can get into it. So, yeah. So let's start with the, uh, the people's agreement, right? And just, you know, butt in whenever you think there's something we're talking about. So it starts. Today, our Mother Earth is wounded and the future of humanity is in danger. If global warming increases by more than two degrees Celsius, a situation that the Copenhagen Accord could lead to, there is a 50% probability that the damages caused to our Mother Earth will be completely irreversible. So... Just a quick note, the Copenhagen Accord was a climate agreement established in 2009. Um, You know, again, this was a UN vehicle. And it set a goal, as they said here, for limiting warming to less than 2 degrees C, among other goals. However, it had no binding mechanisms for holding countries accountable to the commitments and set no real path forward for achieving these goals. What I read about that was they thought 
that if there were no legal ramifications to countries, they'd be more likely to sign up to it. Which, I mean, okay, that's okay. I mean, that sounds in like a catch twenty two. Exactly. I mean, I mean, it's like in principle, yeah, great. More countries will sign to it, but it, it doesn't mean they're going to change anything, right? And like one point I was going to make before, and and I didn't was like, you know, I mentioned Shell. These companies have these goals now, and I mean, I work in corporate America, and my company has a goal, and it's to be like net zero by 2030. Right. And I think 2030, or maybe it's even 2050, whatever it is. Again, I think we've made it pretty clear that neither of us think that's enough. And I mean, if you're going to let capital drive these changes, which the free market would want you to do. They'd be like, well, these companies need to survive, so they're going to do what's best for the environment. I mean, it, it, there's going to be no solution, no good solution, and it, this this planet will be unlivable by I, the time companies are at net zero. Yeah, I also don't fucking trust that net zero worth yeah. of shit. Because like, it depends on, like, so where are you drawing the boundaries of this calculation? In your production, like, how are you offsetting it? Like, through carbon credits? That's a load of shit, too. Yeah, and I, I think it's like carbon credits and, like, planting trees and shit like that right uh, that's how they offset stuff and i mean it, yeah again i mean planting trees is fine you know that's all good i guess but like the carbon credit thing is that's a load of shit yeah it's not actually limiting anything like i mean if you can say your company is net zero i don't yeah. know i mean somebody else is still allowed to dump it with your credits right right i don't know and also what I mean by like where you draw the boundaries of the calculation is like if you talked about the life cycle of a product, like at what point do you stop it? You know what I mean? At some point, if you're shell and you're producing fuel, at some point it gets burned, mm-hmm. right? So <laughs> you're obviously cutting off this like net zero analysis before that point, right? Because yes. it's like left your company's hands or whatever, but it doesn't change the overall effect. So it's just like liberal bullshit messaging, you yeah. know, mm-hmm. in any case. So we'll pick back up. But between 20 and 30% of species would be in danger of disappearing if these things occurred. Large extensions of forest would be affected. Droughts and floods would affect different regions of the planet. Deserts would expand. And the melting of the polar ice caps in the glaciers in the Andes and Himalayas would worsen. Many island states would disappear. And Africa would suffer an increase in temperature of more than 3 degrees Celsius. Likewise, the production of food would diminish in the world, causing catastrophic impact on the survival of inhabitants from vast regions in the planet, and the number of people in the world suffering from hunger would increase dramatically, a figure that already exceeds 1.02 billion people. The corporations and governments of the so-called developed countries, in complicity with a segment of the scientific community, have led us to discuss climate change as a problem limited to the rise in temperature without questioning the cause, which is the capitalist system. So, like, right there, off the jump, we get that. Like, you're not going to get that in the Green New Deal, as we'll say. Like, they're naming the enemy. Yeah. Which is important to do. Yeah, definitely. So, a lot of the arguments on the right are, well, the country, yeah, yeah, things might get warmer, and that'll just mean we can farm more in the north. Like, that doesn't help the global south, which is going to be unlivable. And, like, that's just such a bullshit, stupid argument based on nothing except their feelings. Yeah, yeah, it's like I you just want to throw that back in their face like, yeah, facts don't care about your feelings. Yeah. They really don't. Yeah. And like, you know, this is why we need international solidarity, you know. Mhm. We confront the terminal crisis of a civilizing model that is patriarchal and based on the submission and destruction of human beings in nature that accelerated since the industrial revolution. 
The capitalist system has imposed on us a logic of competition, progress, and limitless growth. This regime of production and consumption seeks profit without limits, separating human beings from nature and imposing a logic of domination upon nature, transforming everything into commodities. Water, earth, the human genome, ancestral cultures, biodiversity, justice, ethics, the rights of peoples, and life itself. So the, the other argument you hear from the right a lot is, like, I think Trump said it. I forget if it was to do with a pipeline or extraction. I, I forget. I mean, the same thing. But, you know, he made that thing like, oh, what, we're going to kill a frog. Did you ever, did you hear that? Yeah. When he said that? I mean, like, yeah. there's no understanding or appreciation of, like, they say biodiversity and just, like, ecosystems in general. Mm-hmm. And it, it's just such a stupid like again, feeling based argument. That Absolutely. You just you know, you see a frog in your garden and you just think like, Oh, they're gonna yeah. kill a frog, whatever. But I mean, you know, these things are very delicately balanced and we are destroying them. Absolutely. I mean, that's amazing, like when you read stuff now about like the threat to I mean, everything but marine life in particular. Yeah. Like, I don't know, like so many places rely on fish for food. Like a lot a lot of fish. We're in big trouble. Yeah. I don't know. These people... And, like, you know, then to the other point about Trump making stupid comments like that, it's just, like, the indigenous people are fucking invisible. Yeah. Like, it's just monstrous. But, anyway. Under capitalism, Mother Earth is converted into a source of raw materials and human beings into consumers and a means of production. Into people that are seen as valuable only for what they owned and not for what they are. These people have red marks, buddy. Yeah. Capitalism requires a powerful military industry for its processes of accumulation and imposition of control over territories and natural resources, suppressing the resistance of the peoples. It is an imperialist system of colonization of the planet. So it's worth noting that if it were a country, the U.S. military would be considered the eighth largest polluting nation on the planet. I think it's the eighth. It's something like that. Either way, it's way too high. So, you know, yet another reason that the military-industrial complex must be completely dismantled. But we're always under threat. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, to get off topic again, but the student loan stuff that comes up today. Yeah. It's like, oh, where are we going to get the money for this? I don't know. Maybe we should stop funding the military and yeah. stop trying to recruit people by, you know, the basically threat of not getting an education and hanging that over their head. Maybe we should just stop that. Yeah. Because you know what? You're paying for these military people to go to school anyway. Right. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. So, I don't know. Whatever. <sighs> Humanity confronts a great dilemma. To continue on the path of capitalism, depredation, and death, or to choose the path of harmony with nature and respect for life. It is imperative that we forge a new system that restores harmony with nature and among human beings. And in order for there to be a balance with nature... There must first be equity among among human beings. So again, like we talked about, like let the developing countries develop equitably, right? We propose to the peoples of the world the recovery, revalorization, and strengthening of the knowledge, wisdom, and ancestral practices of indigenous people, which are affirmed in the thought and practices of, quote, living well, recognizing Mother Earth as a living being with which we have an indivisible, interdependent, complementary, and spiritual relationship. To face climate change, we must recognize Mother Earth as the source of life and forge a new system based on the principles of harmony and balance among all and with all things, complementarity, solidarity, and equality, collective well-being, and the satisfaction of the basic necessities of all, people in harmony with nature, recognition of human beings for what they are, not what they own, elimination of all forms of colonialism, imperialism, and interventionism, 
and peace among the peoples and with Mother Earth. The model we support is not a model of limitless and destructive development. All countries need to produce the goods and services necessary to satisfy the fundamental needs of their populations, but by no means can they continue to follow the path of development that has led to the richest countries to have an ecological footprint five times bigger than what the planet is able to support. Currently, the regenerative capacity of the planet has been exceeded already by more than 30%. If this pace of over-exploitation of our Mother Earth continues, we will need two planets by the year 2030. In an interdependent system in which human beings are only one component, it is not possible to recognize rights only to the human part without provoking an imbalance in the system as a whole. To guarantee human rights and to restore harmony with nature, it is necessary to effectively recognize and apply the rights of Mother Earth. For this purpose, we propose the attached project for the Universal Declaration on the Rights of Mother Earth in which it's recorded that it has the right to live and to exist, the right to be respected, the right to regenerate its biocapacity and to continue its vital cycles and processes free of human alteration, the right to maintain their identity and integrity as differentiated beings, self-regulated and interrelated, the right to water as the source of life, the right to clean air, the right to comprehensive health, the right to be free of contamination and pollution, free of toxic and radioactive waste, the right to be free of alterations or modifications of its genetic structure in a manner that threatens its integrity or vital and healthy functioning, and the right to prompt and full restoration for violations to the rights acknowledged in this declaration caused by human activities. So imagine if, as an enforcement mechanism in the UN, they actually set up a climate court and you could sue a company for violating one of these rights. That's what we would need. Honest to God. Yeah. Like, you know, you get you, yeah. you pollute... You pollute the air, you pollute the water, you go to climate court. Yeah. I mean, seriously. It's never going to happen. But no, I know. It's what we need. Right. But that's the point is like these are the solutions that yeah. are that these people are putting out here that would actually be what we need if you could take this structure and apply it into like an international body like the UN should be, not completely dominated by the Imperial Corps. Yeah. The, quote, shared vision seeks to stabilize the concentrations of greenhouse gases to make effective the Article 2 of the United Nations Framework Convention on Climate Change, which states that, quote, the stabilization of greenhouse gases concentrations in the atmosphere to a level that prevents dangerous anthropogenic inferences for the climate system. Our vision is based on the principle of historical, common, but differentiated responsibilities to demand the developed countries to commit with quantifiable goals of emissions reductions that will allow it to return the concentrations of greenhouse gases to 300 ppm, which is parts per million, therefore the increase in the average world temperature to a maximum of one degree C. So half, they're saying, is what's needed actually to make sure that you know it's still livable and everybody can still develop sustainably. Emphasizing the need for urgent action to achieve this vision and with the support of peoples, movements, and countries, developed countries should commit to ambitious targets for reducing emissions that permit the achievement of short-term objectives while maintaining our vision in favor of balance in the Earth's climate system in agreement with the ultimate objective of the convention. The shared vision for long-term cooperative action in climate change negotiations should not be reduced to defining the limit on temperature increases in the concentration of greenhouse gases in the atmosphere, but also incorporate in a balanced and integral manner measures regarding capacity building, production, and consumption patterns, and other essential factors such as the acknowledging of the rights of Mother Earth to establish harmony with nature. I, I don't know. Have you been to like the Global South or de 
quote unquote developing nations before. Like I've been to Costa Rica and they seem to take it a lot more seriously. Yeah. They they mostly have electric cars and I think something like 80% of their electricity is generated by hydroelectric. Okay. So you know, th- these countries are taking steps to right. be better. And and you know, this was 4 years ago when I was there, right. I think at least 4 years ago. So I I mean, yeah, I think there's a recognition and a and a drive to do more in those countries anyway. Yeah. And this yeah, like you you know, you kind of said it and I think that I've heard it in other things, but we're we're just obsessed with energy. Yeah. And energy consumption. No, absolutely. And I mean, I'm sure Bolivia did a lot with Evo and are back on track now that now that they've gotten rid of the coup government, right? But, you know, another great example, and unfortunately I've not been there yet, but Cuba, I mean, what they've been able to achieve on the sustainability front, like they are, if you dive into what they're doing in terms of like sustainable agriculture, sustainable building, they're in year 3000 compared to the U.S., honestly. But they're evil, Nick. <laughs> That's right. Evil Cubans, we got to we gotta sanction them. Yeah. <sighs> anyway. <laughs> All right. So developed countries as the main cause of climate change and assuming their historical responsibility must recognize and honor their climate debt in all of its dimensions as the basis for a just, effective and scientific solution to climate change. In this context, we demand that developed countries do the following. Restore to developing countries the atmospheric space that is occupied by their greenhouse gas emissions. This implies the decolonization of the atmosphere through the reduction and absorption of their emissions. Assume the cost and technology transfer needs of developing countries arising from the loss of development opportunities due to living in a restricted atmospheric space. Assume responsibility for the hundreds of millions of people that will be forced to migrate due to the climate change caused by these countries and eliminate their restrictive immigration policies, offering migrants a decent life with full human rights guarantees in their countries. Yes. Assume adaptation debt related to the impacts of climate change on developing countries by providing the means to prevent, minimize, and deal with damages arising from their excessive emissions. Honor these debts as part of a broader debt to Mother Earth by adopting and implementing the United Nations Universal Declaration on the Rights of Mother Earth. The focus must not be only on financial compensation, but also on restorative justice understood as the restitution of integrity to our Mother Earth and all its beings. These guys seem to ignore American and British exceptionalism. That's do right. They, do they not understand how great that is? Yeah, they really don't think that, they really don't understand that we're going to come up with better solutions and they should just wait and see what happens. <laughs> and like, you know, we've developed them, we've civilized them, you know, we just, we'll take care of it. <sighs> we deplore attempts by countries to annul the Kyoto Protocol, which is the sole legally binding instrument specific to the reduction of greenhouse gas emissions by developed countries. We inform the world that despite their obligation to reduce emissions, developed countries have increased their emissions by 11.2% in the period from 1990 to 2007. I'm sure that hasn't gotten much better. During that same period, due to unbridled consumption, the United States of America has increased its greenhouse gas emissions by 16.8%, reaching an average of 20 to 23 tons of CO2 per person. This represents nine times more than that of the average inhabitant of the quote-unquote third world and 20 times more than that of the average inhabitant of sub-Saharan Africa. Jesus. We categorically reject the illegitimate Copenhagen Accord that allows developed countries to offer insufficient reductions in greenhouse gases based 
involuntary and individual commitments, violating the environmental integrity of Mother Earth and leading us toward an increase in global temperatures of around 4C. The next conference on climate change to be held at the end of 2010 in Mexico should approve an amendment to the Kyoto Protocol for the second commitment period from 2013 to 2017, under which developed countries must agree to significant domestic emissions reductions of at least 50% based on 1990 levels, excluding carbon markets or other offset mechanisms that mask the failure of actual reductions in greenhouse gas emissions. We require, first of all, the establishment of a goal for the group of developed countries to achieve the assignment of individual commitments for each developed country under the framework of complementary efforts among each one, maintaining in this way the Kyoto Protocols as the route to emissions reductions. The United States, as the only Annex One country on Earth that did not ratify the Kyoto Protocol, has a significant responsibility toward all peoples of the world to ratify this document and commit itself to respecting and complying with the missions reduction targets on a scale appropriate to the total size of its economy. So again, you know, they're naming capitalism, they're naming the, you know, the legacy of colonialism and imperialism, but they're naming the USA as the number one obstacle to the solutions here. Right. Yeah, I, I mentioned it before on other podcasts, and I think it's true. Europe certainly hasn't done enough, but at least there seems to be an acceptance that this is a real thing. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. what they're doing isn't enough, and it's still driven by capital, and it's still not going to make the world a livable place or do anything else. But at least it's not like this country where half the people like laugh at you if you talk about climate change because they're just like, they think it's just, you know, some magic that the left talks about. I mean, it's fucking ridiculous. I was talking to somebody the other day, you know, just about like the heat waves and everything. And they're like, oh, yeah, you know, summers are hot. It's like, no, they're not this hot. Yeah, and what so, someone that we know said it had to do with like solar flares or something. <laughs> yeah, it was like, weird. And maybe it does. But it's like we said, it's like, OK, if there is some kind of cycle, yeah. it's still an upward overall average trend. Like, I don't know. It just drives me ballistic. But anyway, you know, it's just so typical that the USA is the one country or the one or one of two or one of one countries that, you know, refuses to adopt these things. Maybe right. That's where we like, are. Except. Like uh, food is a human right. All that kind of stuff. All those great things that we need to veto. Yeah. Maybe that's where we are. Exceptional pollution. Yeah. <laughs> but anyway. Um, we the peoples have the equal right to be protected from the adverse effects of climate change and reject the notion of adaptation to climate change as understood as a resignation to impacts provoked by the historical emissions of developed countries, which themselves must adapt their modes of life and consumption in the face of this global emergency. We see it as imperative to confront the adverse effects of climate change and consider adaptation to be a process rather than an imposition, as well as a tool that can serve to help offset those effects, demonstrating that it is possible to achieve harmony with nature under a different model for living. It is necessary to construct an adaptation fund exclusively for addressing climate change as part of a financial mechanism that is managed in a sovereign, transparent, and equitable manner for all states. This fund should assess the impacts and costs of climate change in developing countries and needs deriving from these impacts and monitor support on the part of developed countries. It should also include a mechanism for compensation for current and future damages, loss of opportunities due to extreme and gradual climactic events, and additional costs that could present themselves if our planet surpasses ecological thresholds such as those impacts that present obstacles to, quote, living well. I, mean, I could just imagine 
someone on the right, like like Tucker Carlson, reading this and being like, "Oh, they want reparations. Oh, we brought these people, we gave these people civilization, and now they want to be, they want reparations for it." Yeah. And again, I'm being sarcastic, but I mean, you, you know, I obviously we don't believe that, and if you don't know that by now. I, you probably haven't listened to much, but I can just see them like taking that like mocking tone. And with after this everything document. we give them, they have yeah. the audacity to come to us, yeah, and ask for reparations, right? Like, God, with that stupid like quizzical look on yeah. his face, like, like d- dumbfounded. Yeah. He's got such a punchable face. Yeah, I could say more, but I won't. The Copenhagen Accord imposed on developing countries by a few states beyond simply offering insufficient resources attempts as well to divide and create confrontation between peoples and to extort developing countries by placing conditions on access to adaptation and mitigation resources. We also assert as unacceptable the attempt and processes of international negotiation to classify developing countries for their vulnerability to climate change, generating disputes, inequalities, and segregation among them. The immense challenge humanity faces of stopping global warming and cooling the planet can only be achieved through a profound shift in agricultural practices toward the sustainable model of production used by indigenous and rural farming peoples, as well as other ancestral models and practices that contribute to solving the problem of agricultural and food sovereignty. Yeah, so like local production, we don't need to ship fresh fish, you know, wherever you, wherever you want it from to your restaurant on the East Coast the next day. Yeah, I you mean, don't need these, that. When I lived in Phoenix, there's these high-end restaurants that serve sushi in Phoenix. That shouldn't be possible. Yeah. You should not be able to get oysters or sushi yeah. in Phoenix. And again, it, it, that also goes into you know what we're touching on in this Taste of Empire, where you take these ancestral modes of, of agriculture and replace them with like monocrop farming, where you're just, you know, you're just ruining the soil and ruining the, the land as well. Yeah. So, like, again, you know, we we had this conversation, I think, a little bit about, like, primitivism. And, like, I think that's just, like, such a, this can be, that can be such, like, a misnomer and, like, a mislabel to things, term. right? You know what I mean? Because, like, you can have a good quality life in 2022 and live off of, like, sustainably farmed things. Yeah, you know what I mean? And maybe, maybe it's more limited to your local cuisine, but you know what? Yeah. Deal with it. Yeah. You know? We're going to have to deal with it. Yeah. Um, but to get back into it, um, this is understood as the right of peoples to control their own seeds, lands, water, and food production, thereby guaranteeing through forms of production that are in harmony with Mother Earth and appropriate to local cultural context, access to sufficient, varied, and nutritious foods in complementarity with Mother Earth and deepening the autonomous, participatory, communal, and shared production of every nation and people. Man, this is just beautiful. Yeah. Honestly, like I don't even mean that in like a... Like, I mean it genuinely. Um, Climate change is now producing profound impacts on agriculture and the ways of life of indigenous peoples and farmers throughout the world, and these impacts will worsen in the future. Agribusiness, through its social, economic, and cultural model of global capitalist production and its logic of producing food for the market and not to fulfill the right to proper nutrition, is one of the principal causes of climate change. Yeah, so maybe you don't need your burgers all the time. You know what I mean? And again, it's not to blame people that just, you know, are poor and tired from capitalism, from working all day that, you know, sometimes you just want to go to McDonald's. It's the system that creates that situation where you feel like you have nothing to do but go to McDonald's. Not only nothing to do, but the system, because of how far we're shipping goods and shipping foodstuffs, it's expensive to eat healthily. Absolutely. And it shouldn't be. Like No. 
if grocery stores were filled by the local farms and sustainable farming, the the prices wouldn't be like, oh, we had to import a kiwi from New Zealand and therefore it's $5 for yeah. a kiwi, you know? I don't know. There was a documentary a while ago and I don't know what... It, it, it certainly wasn't our politics, but it, it made the point of like, it had a poor family on a diet of trying to go to to shop at a grocery store and buy vegetables. And it was like, do I, do I buy $5 of broccoli to feed my family of four and then have to buy other stuff? Or do I go buy a $1 burger from McDonald's? Yeah. You know, and, and so that's another part of capitalism that just, it they make, and then, and then people will complain about healthcare and the cost of healthcare. Well, this whole system is driving people to eat unhealthily and to eat unsustainably, then get unhealthy, then healthcare costs a lot of money. I mean, it's just a totally unsustainable model when you look at climate change and healthcare and the effects on people. Yeah, I mean, and not to mention that, like, these local farmers, like, they just, like can't compete in this environment right in the environment where there are factory farms like out in the midwest just like turning out or in the south turning out chicken in the midwest turning out cattle right and you know what that does have a big impact so you know what i mean so like he can talk about like cows farting all he wants but there is a problem with factory farming no from a, from like yeah. a just you know humanity perspective in terms of just being like treating animals humanely yeah. and like i you know i don't want to be like holier than thou like i eat meat and stuff like that and Same. you know but i don't think me just personally like and like i try to do things right but like me being vegan as an individual i have no problem with people making that choice but like you're not changing the world by making that individual choice it's a much bigger system and i'm not condemning anybody that makes that choice either you know yeah i have a fr- my, one of my friends in europe we were talking about climate change and he was visiting and we were recycling and he was like, yeah, you should definitely recycle. But until we change how farming's done, it's not going to make that much of a difference. And it was like an interesting point. Right. Yeah, absolutely. So, but getting back to agribusiness, um, that they, what the Cochabamba people's agreement says about it, but it's technological commercial and political approach only serves to deepen the climate change crisis and increase hunger in the world. For this reason, we reject free trade agreements and association agreements and all forms of the application of intellectual property rights to life, current technological packages, including agrochemicals and genetic modifications, and those that offer false solutions, biofuels, geoengineering, nanotechnology, etc., that only exacerbate the current crisis. Yes. We similarly denounce the way in which the capitalist model imposes mega infrastructure projects and invades territories with extractive projects, water privatization and militarized territories, expelling indigenous peoples from their lands, inhibiting food sovereignty and deepening socio-environmental crises. We demand recognition of the right of all peoples, living beings, and Mother Earth to have access to water, and we support the proposal of the government of Bolivia to recognize water as a fundamental human right. It's amazing to me that we don't that <laughs> the world can't agree on that. Yeah, was it the dollop that did a podcast about like was it Fiji Water or or one of those people that own like a bunch of the aquifers in California? Oh, really? I don't know if it was them or or. You know, you know, they. I think it was a doll. Did did something about water in California and this family that owns like just about all of it. It's crazy. Well, I thought like one of the big things. I mean, that could be part of it. The other part that I know about what goes on in California is so much of it 
is used to water like the pistachio farms yes, of yeah. like this really rich family. Yeah. But like that might be the un- same family that owns it probably this. is. Yeah. It's ungodly amounts of water though. Yeah. That like, you know, as all the reservoirs out west dry up and drought hits, that you know, but we still need to make sure Costco has their ten pound bags of pistachios. Right. right? The definition of forest used in negotiations of the United States Framework con- or United Nations Framework Convention on Climate Change, which includes plantations, is unacceptable. Monoculture plantations are not forests. Therefore, oh my God, they include plant. Oh, wow, I didn't know that. Therefore, we require a definition for negotiation purposes that recognizes the native forest, jungles, and the diverse ecosystems on Earth. The United Nations Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous Peoples must be fully recognized, implemented, and integrated in climate change negotiations. The best strategy and action to avoid deforestation and degradation and protect native forests and jungles is to recognize and guarantee collective rights to lands and territories, especially considering that most of the forests are located within the territories of indigenous peoples and nations and other traditional communities. So it's like we say all the time, it's like, who are the land protectors? Who are the people that care? And it's, you know, a segment of those people are writing this document. So we should listen. We condemn market mechanisms such as REDD Red, reducing emissions from deforestation and forest degradation and its versions plus and plus plus, which are violating the sovereignty of peoples and their right to prior free and informed consent, as well as the sovereignty of national states, the customs of peoples and the rights of nature. I'll need to look into that. I don't know anything about it. Um, Polluting countries have an obligation to carry out direct transfers of the economic and technological resources needed to pay for the restoration and maintenance of forests in favor of the people's and indigenous ancestral organic structures. Compensation must be direct, and in addition to the sources of funding promised by developed countries outside of the carbon market, and never serve as carbon offsets. We demand that countries stop actions on local forests based on market mechanisms and propose non-existent and conditional results. We call on governments to create a global program to restore native forests and jungles, managed and administered by the people, implementing forest seeds, fruit trees, and native flora. Governments should eliminate forest concessions and support the conservation of petroleum deposits in the ground and urgently stop the exploitation of hydrocarbons in forest lands. We call upon states to reorganize, respect, and guarantee the effective implementation of international human rights standards and the rights of indigenous peoples, including the United Nations Declaration of the Rights of Indigenous Peoples under ILO Convention 169, among other relevant instruments in the negotiations, policies, and measures used to meet the challenges posed by climate change. In particular, we call upon states to give legal recognition to claims over territories, lands, and natural resources to enable and strengthen our traditional ways of life and contribute effectively to solving climate change. We demand the full and effective implementation of the right to consultation, participation, and prior free and informed consent of indigenous peoples in all negotiation processes and in the design and implementation of measures related to climate change. Environmental degradation and climate change are currently reaching critical levels. And one of the main consequences of this is domestic and international migration. According to projections, there were already about 25 million climate migrants by 1995. Current estimates are around 50 million, and projections suggest that between 200 million and 1 billion people will become displaced by situations resulting from climate change by the year 2050. So there, 
the right is already complaining about migrants that are coming because of colonization projects we've done in the past. Yep. If, you know, what's going to happen because of this? It's going to, they're going to have like live fucking firing squads on the board. I mean, people, we need to get organized because like climate fascism. Yeah. Is, it's it's going to get really bad. Like I, you know, that, that might sound like an exaggeration, but I think that's probably, they probably wouldn't. They like, already have concentration camps. Well, yeah, exactly. So, you know, they're going to build Trump's wall and DeSantis is going to put like soldiers on top of it to just kill anybody who comes near. I mean, that's, it'll get really, really scary with, with climate change. I mean, if we don't stop capitalism. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, no, I mean, it's just like horrifying to think about that. Like 1 billion people, like not just our border, but like Africa. Yeah. I mean, the Middle East, like have you seen some of like the, uh, the temperatures recorded out there this summer? Yeah. I mean, you know, I, I don't know how much I've talked about, like, how big of a football or soccer fan that I am. But I'm like a huge, I'm, you know, I'm from England. I'm a huge. You have. Uh, you have. have we the, know. Of the English team <laughs> and also my local team. But anyway, the World Cup this year is being held in Qatar mm-hmm. or Qatar. And you could go through all manner of criticisms about human rights, the use of slaves to build stadiums. A hundred different reasons why you shouldn't watch that World Cup. Yeah. And, you know, I'm, again, as big a fan as I am, I'm seriously considering, like, boycotting it. But, like, again, wh- what's that going to do if I don't watch it, right? You got to organize a yeah. boycott. Right. But o- also things like, you know, I-, I don't think alcohol is allowed in Qatar, but because, like, I think Heineken are a sponsor of the World Cup, they have to be allowed to Make serve an alcohol. exception. So it, there's stupid things like that, but just, it's like 140 degrees there. Yeah. Like players are going to die. Yeah. And they claim they've built these like outdoor stadiums that are still air conditioned to keep it cool. It's insane. And, and you know, you can, I, I talked about Phoenix and having golf courses. You can look at Saudi Arabia and Qatar and these places that are like very extravagant to live in and have really high concentrations of wealth. It's the same there. Yeah. I mean, realistically, we need to stop wasting resources on building like outdoor air conditioned stadiums for just the World Cup because it's a brand new stadium, right? I'm sure there's stadiums that already exist. Yeah, and it just goes into that whole argument with the Olympics and the World Cups yeah. and like these, they give it to these countries and then they have these, what do they call them, white elephants? These stadiums that never get used yeah, ever again. They dump again. all just, these resources yeah. into it and then it's just like these vacant. They have a little boost in tourism. Yeah. And then they're stuck with the bill. Yeah. But FIFA and NBC, they all make a shit ton of money every four years. Whatever, the the Olympic Committee as well. Yep. Anyway, so getting back to it. But developed countries should assume responsibility for climate migrants, welcoming them into their territories and recognizing their fundamental rights through the signing of international conventions that provide for the definition of climate migrant and requires all states to abide by determinations. Establish an international tribunal of conscience to denounce, make visible, document, judge, and punish violations of the rights of migrants, refugees, and displaced persons within countries of origin, transit, and destination, clearly identifying the responsibilities of states, companies, and other agents. Current funding directed toward developing countries for climate change and the proposal of the Copenhagen Accord are insignificant. In addition to official development assistance and public sources, developed countries must commit to a new annual funding of at least 6% of GDP to tackle climate change in developing countries. 
This is viable considering that a similar amount is spent on national defense and that five times more than that have been put forward to rescue failing banks and speculators, which raises serious questions about global priorities and political will. This funding should be direct and free of conditions and should not interfere with the national sovereignty or self-determination of the most affected communities and groups. Just goes to, again, capitalism. Everybody, all these guys bang on about free markets. Would a free market pay for a bank to how, fail? How free market was the troubled asset relief program? Yeah, exactly. It's it's pretty. Dis- it is. I mean, they're exactly right there. It just it shows what the priorities of the of the global north are. Right. Absolutely. Supporting their bros in ca- <laughs> in capitalism. Yep, they're willing to let everybody else die. Yeah. To keep up the military industrial complex and the banks. Yep. Yep. In view of the inefficiency of the current mechanism, a new funding mechanism should be established at the 2010 Climate Change Conference in Mexico, functioning under the authority of the Conference of the Parties under the United Nations Framework Convention on Climate Change and held accountable to it, with significant representation of developing countries to ensure compliance with the funding commitments of Annex 1 countries. It's like, okay, we know you guys aren't going to do it, so we need to step up and be the adults in the room. It's funny how that always falls on developing nations to do that stuff, right? We're just like the spoiled brats. No shit. It's really what it is. Like, we're just like the spoiled, whining brats. Yeah. We're the Kardashians of the world. (laughs) Seriously. Like, you know, we all need to, like, just grow up and (laughs) start taking this stuff seriously. You know, and I do think that, like, the denialism is ebbing. I don't disagree that it still exists to a frightening extent. Yeah. You know, and like sometimes, man, like I wonder, like, do these people like these right wing politicians or even like the liberal Democrats who like downplay it? Like, do they know the extent and like they're just so caught up in this system? Like they're so beholden to it that they can't do anything but like, you know, continue to try to play you the game to maintain to the system. You know what I mean? Yeah, that's it. You're exactly right. You know, but I mean, the, the part that I don't get right is. These people also have children and grandchildren. Yeah. Do they not want the world to be livable when their grandchildren grow up? Yeah, I don't know. Like, I just, I think Is money that, I guess it's that important to them. Maybe they are lizard people. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> like, I don't know. Globalists. I'm joking, but. No, but they are inhuman. Like, they are, like, sick, sick people that really. Did that whole lizard people thing come from just, like, kind of what you insinuated there? Like people saying that people were inhuman. I don't know what and it is. They just it just morphed into they're actually lizard people. Yeah, they're just like unfeeling <laughs> reptiles. I don't know, but I mean, like if it didn't get into such like a weird place, like it is a good like metaphor. Yeah, but, the scary like, thing about all those types of things, if you follow the people that say them, it gets to anti-Semitism. Yeah, right we, get to, we get to, <laughs> right away. We get to Jewish international <laughs> yeah. banking. Like, yeah, there's right. Yeah, quick. it's like one step. From yeah, that. yeah. Ugh. Anyway, it has been stated that developed countries significantly increased their emissions in the period from 1990 to 2007, despite having stated that the reduction would be substantially supported by market mechanisms. The market doesn't work. (laughs) The carbon market has become a lucrative business. This is still how Elon Musk makes his money. He doesn't make his money on Teslas. He makes his money on carbon credits. 
The carbon market has become a lucrative business commodifying our Mother Earth. It is therefore not an alternative for tackling climate change as it loots and ravages the land, water, and even life itself. The recent financial crisis has demonstrated that the market is incapable of regulating the financial system, which is fragile and uncertain due to speculation and the emergence of intermediary brokers. Therefore, it would be totally irresponsible to leave in their hands the care and protection of human existence and of our Mother Earth. We consider inadmissible that current negotiations propose the creation of a new mechanism that extend and promote the carbon market, for existing mechanisms have not resolved the problem of climate change nor led to real and direct actions to reduce greenhouse gases. It is necessary to demand fulfillment of the commitments assumed by developed countries under the United Nations Framework Convention on Climate Change regarding development and technology transfer, and to reject the technology showcase proposed by developed countries that only markets technology. It is essential to establish guidelines in order to create a multilateral and multidisciplinary mechanism for participatory control, management, and evaluation of the exchange of technologies. These technologies must be useful, clean, and socially sound. Likewise, it is fundamental to establish a fund for the financing and inventory of technologies that are appropriate and free of intellectual property rights. Patents in particular should move from the hands of private monopolies to the public domain in order to promote accessibility and low cost. So that's one thing that actually absolutely drives me ballistic with these like patents. Like one thing that you always hear about, like, you know, we talked about, I think, Monsanto on one episode, right? But just in the whole concept of patents, right? Like used to hear this getting thrown out about China is like, oh, they steal our intellectual property. And it's like, I don't give a fuck. Yeah. If that intellectual property and technology is going to like maybe go to like improving somebody's life or like improving the environment, I don't care. Yeah. I don't care. Yeah. I mean, you hear a lot about that from what I've heard with China on intellectual property theft is to do with like processes of making chemicals or making other things. But even that, right? So that means if if you want to look at that in terms of climate change, it's still bad because it's still extraction, but it takes out the whole transporting stuff from the U.S. to China. So it'll take out a certain percentage of carbon use, Yeah. right? And yeah, I mean, yeah, I'm, I'm the same as you. I yeah, like I don't care. Like let them like... Take it all. We should. Just, I mean, it's the same thing to get into. Wait, it a was little like bit. the argument with vaccines. Absolutely, that's exactly yeah. where I was going. Yeah, when they were like, we should not give these patents to anybody. <laughs> so <laughs> Pfizer keeps making money. Yeah, exactly. And like, it's no wonder that people don't trust the the pharmaceutical industry. And I'm right. not saying don't get like vaccinated or anything like that. But you know what? There's a reason, a deep seated, often misplaced, very often misplaced. But there's a reason that these people don't trust us because they are money grubbing scumbags. Right. So anyway, but the whole thing of IP preventing like actual processes that would help just on the basis of profit, which is the point of this entire thing, like that profit is the problem. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's just, it's a really, you know, insidious point. Yeah. You know what I mean? The point is good. The mechanism of patents and IP is very insidious, I think, you know? Yeah. <clears throat> anyway, so as we're getting into it, but knowledge is universal and should be for no reason be the object of private property or private use, nor should its application in the form of technology be. Developed countries have a responsibility to share their technology with developing countries, to build research centers in developing countries for the creation of technologies and innovations, and defend and promote their development and application for living well. The world must recover and relearn ancestral principles and approaches from native peoples to stop the destruction of the planet 
as well as promote ancestral practices, knowledge, and spirituality to recuperate the capacity for living well in harmony with Mother Earth. Don't these people understand we taught them Christianity so they could get rid of their spirituality? <laughs> yes. Yes. They apparently forgot, Steve. Yeah. That's why we cooed Evo. <laughs> yeah. We needed to learn them again. Considering the lack of political will on the part of developed countries to effectively comply with commitments and obligations assumed under the United Nations Framework Convention on Climate Change and the Kyoto Protocol, and given the lack of a legal international organism to guard against and sanction climate and environmental crimes that violate the rights of Mother Earth and humanity, we demand the creation of an international climate and environmental justice tribunal that has the legal capacity to prevent, judge, and penalize states, industries, and people that by commission or omission contaminate and provoke climate change. We urge peoples to propose and promote deep reform within the United Nations so that all member states comply with the decisions of the International Climate and Justice Tribunal. The future of humanity is in danger, and we cannot allow a group of leaders from developed countries to decide for all countries as they tried unsuccessfully to do at the Conference of the Parties in Copenhagen. This decision concerns us all. Thus, it is essential to carry out a global referendum or popular consultation on climate change in which all are consulted regarding the following issues. The level of emissions reductions on the part of developed countries and transnational corporations, financing to be offered by developed countries, the creation of an international climate justice tribunal, and the need for a universal declaration for the rights of Mother Earth, and the need to change the current capitalist system. The process of a global referendum or popular consultation will depend on process of preparation that ensures the successful development of the same. In order to coordinate our international action and implement the results of this Accord of the Peoples, we call for the building of a global people's movement for Mother Earth, which should be based on the principles of complementarity and respect for the diversity of origin and visions among its members, constituting a broad and democratic space for coordination and joint worldwide actions. To this end, we adopt the attached global plan of action so that in Mexico, the developed countries listed in Annex 1 respect the existing legal framework and reduce their greenhouse gases emissions by 50% and that the different proposals contained in this agreement are adopted. Finally, we agree to undertake a second World People's Conference on Climate Change and the Rights of Mother Earth in 2011 as part of this process of building the global people's movement for Mother Earth and reacting to the outcomes of climate change conference to be held at the end of this year in Cancun. Okay, so that's the that is the end of the uh, Cochabamba People's Agreement, right? So, just to um, kind of put this into perspective, and again, this was from 2011. I just want to kind of frame what happened afterward. So, I pulled this little excerpt from this book called uh, "Climate Solutions Beyond Capitalism" by Tina. L- Tina Landis and it's fantastic and generally like optimistic because it says that there are solutions out there. We just need to have the will to do it and you know, the system to do it. Um, but this part, you know, is kind of infuriating, but again, it kind of adds some context to this, to the conclusion, what happened after this, uh, people's agreement was put out there. So from that book, um, quote, At the 2009 Copenhagen meeting, the Obama administration attempted to blackmail countries not to support the proposal from Bolivia and Venezuela to create binding targets on carbon emissions reductions. Behind the scenes, it told countries they would not receive climate adaptation aid if they did not vote for the U.S. version of the accord. A few months later... 
Bolivian President Evo Morales convened the World People's Conference on Climate Change and the Rights of Mother Earth in Cochabamba, attended by 15,000 delegates, which denounced the inadequacy of Copenhagen and, and accounted for clear binding targets to limit global warming to 1C, as we read. The U.S. government and other imperialist countries boycotted the event. A decade later, they helped overthrow Morales in a military coup. Yeah, like you said, infuriating, but unfortunately not surprising. Yeah. That's the sad state of it, is that is that things like that don't surprise you anymore. Yeah. So, I don't know if we have to read the entirety of the Green New Deal, mm-hmm. unless you want to. No, I mean, um, you've read it more recently than me, so if you think there's anything to highlight. I think the main thing for me that comes out of the Green New Deal, and I'll post a link so people can get to it, although you can find it really easily online, is that they recognize, you know, AOC and whoever drafted this, you know, recognize that, you know, this is human-caused climate change, right? They recognize that warming at or above 2C is going to do all these things, right? But you don't see the solutions that the Cochabamba People's Agreement calls for that are actually required, right? Like, obviously, this is presented in, like, a very... I mean, it has to be because it's in the U.S. House of Representatives, right? But it's a very insular-looking proposal. I mean, she states in there that about economic loss, right? Right. So, like, that's a key driving force for her is that... Or for whoever wrote this is that we're going to lose this much opportunity of gain right? if we don't do something. Absolutely. So again, you know, it's still, it's it's something probably better than most of what the U.S. has put forth, but it's still driven by, by capital, right? Absolutely. And again, on the good side, you know, they recognize that, you know, certain things need to be, you know, basically granted as rights. You know what I mean? Yeah. But I don't know, man. It's just like, like I said off the top of starting with, the people's agreement, it's like off the jump, they name capitalism and imperialism as the enemy. Right. Explicitly. Yep. You know what I mean? And this is predicated upon, you know, again, like, so they resolve out of all this, right, that they, they, it's the duty of the government to, you know, create this Green New Deal to achieve net zero greenhouse gas emissions. I'm going to read a little bit of it here. To create millions of good high wage jobs. Yeah, good, right? To invest in infrastructure and industry of the United States. To secure for all people generations of clean air, water, climate, community, cli- climate and community resilience, healthy food, access to nature, and a sustainable sustainable environment. To promote justice and equity by stopping current, preventing future, and repairing historic oppression of indigenous people, communities of color, migrant communities, deindustrialized communities, depopulated rural communities, the poor, low-income workers, women, the elderly, the unhoused, people with disabilities, and youth. So again, she does get into it, right? Yeah, she's, I mean, there's definitely good stuff in here. Yeah, there is. But again, like, no binding targets, Right. And it's just, it's always within the capitalist context, I guess, is the big thing that I take away. Like having read that and then reading Cochabamba, it's just. You made the point. It, she Again, it, it's, it's radical in the grand scheme of the U.S. Yeah. But she obviously knew who her audience was, right? Yeah. It's just more to the point that like you can't, you can't do anything but something like this in our current context. Yes. And that's, that's right. insufficient. And yep. the world recognizes it. 
we seem to be, we and like, again, like our junior partners seem to be some of the few, and I'm sure there's other countries, right? Like that are, you know, and we got to be careful because it's not just when we say they, it's like, it's like the ruling class. Mm -hmm. It's not necessarily the people. Yeah. No, no. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know. Do you have anything to add to that? We kind of like, I, I thought, I, and then I was going through that. I just thought the most important thing was to actually read that people's agreement. Yeah. Because before you mentioned it to me a few weeks ago, I hadn't heard of it. And again, that probably goes a lot towards Mr. Obama's, uh, you know, blackmail of people to, to keep it under wraps. Right. Um, which is unfortunate, you know, that was a pretty fantastic, you know, piece of writing. And unfortunately, he was cooed and nothing ever really happened. So, yeah, and I don't, I don't know how much actually came out of that. You know what I mean? Like the, uh, yeah. but I mean, like I mentioned, you know, I, I do think the global South does more than we do. Yeah, I don't disagree at all, man. Yeah. I mean, especially in places where, like, I mean, Evo was he's an he was an indigenous. I mean, he's still alive, but he was in a past life. He was an indigenous like union organizer. Yeah, you know, so if you like. A person like that gets out there in the community and like his voice gets heard. I mean, in those places means something. Bet your ass. You know what I mean? Like, of course. So I don't know. Um, Hopefully this was like insightful to people. You know, again, I've been meaning to read this for a long time and really dive into it. You know, I just think it's really interesting the way that, you know, if you could actually like implement some of these things that they're calling for, because they're calling for like, very concrete like bodies to be formed right and concrete actions to move forward and you know if you could actually do that then maybe we could actually do something i mean we might have to be even a little more strict now than we were in 2010 we should have listened back then yeah i mean every year that goes by now it just it just becomes a year closer to (laughs) annihilation for half the globe yeah so i mean i guess like at the end of the day i'm just at this point it's like I don't know. Like, what are we going to do? Like, are we going to let it happen? Or like, are we going to try to fight somehow? You know, so I'm still trying to figure out what the best way to fight is. But hopefully, you know, getting educated and everything helps too. So go read how to blow up a pipeline. (laughs) Yeah. And if anybody wants to talk about climate change more, we'd be happy to do it. Yeah, absolutely. So uh, thanks for listening. As always, um, we're at interventionpod at Gmail and then on Instagram at interventionpod. Thanks, y'all. Thanks.